Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's come with a lot of existential crises along the way and needing to try and identify with people. I mean, if you just look at being an expat or or uh, what's called a third culture kid. So those of us that have grown up in lots of different countries, we tend to feel that we're not accepted anywhere. So for me, it was a lot of not being accepted by the people I'd grown up with in Africa because I hadn't spent my teenage years there didn't belong in Sweden because I hadn't spent my childhood there. So it was like I just missed out on both of them. And then it wasn't until I moved to Scotland um, that I was like, okay, I chose to live here. But actually up until last year, I still struggled with identifying where home was. Actually, I do have a lot of empathy with what Marlene is saying. It's quite similar for me as well. I've lived in the UK for 45 years but I'm not English. I'm Dutch. But my Dutch, say, friends and family, believe I'm English. And my Dutch language is terrible now. But where, where do I belong? <laughs> it, yeah, she makes a really, really good point. And it's such a fascinating story listening to her talk about all of her travels and you know, where her parents have come from as well, which all contributes to this not really understanding what nationality you are. Because on top of, for example, my situation, my mother was Anglo-Indian and she made a very large point <laughs> to say it was Anglo, i.e. English origin stroke Indian, which isn't actually true. She was born in India, but her forefathers might have come from Ireland, as it happens. Uh, yeah, but my, my father was 100% Dutch. So Marlene's story is not dissimilar. And it's, it's really interesting also in terms of how that journey of different nationalities has brought her to doing work with the original country where she, where her uncle now lives. Yeah, anyway, you have to listen to Marlene's story. It's really, really fascinating. Enjoy. Staying Alive UK. Share your story. So Marlene, thanks for uh, doing the honour in coming on my podcast today seeing as I went on yours a few weeks ago. I can't even remember how long ago it was. It doesn't matter because in podcasting world, it doesn't matter what time of day, week, year we're in, does it? No, so, not at all. <laughs> no. So I, I appreciate you doing this for me. And I'm really curious about your story because I know from the very little time that we've spoken and looking at your profiles that you, you're involved in a lot of projects. And uh, I'm really intrigued. So I'm going to hand over to you. I'm going to be quiet. If I hear something interesting, I will interrupt you. Um, <laughs> but um, I'd love to know how it all, where it all got started. So where were you born? And just take us through life up until today. Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. It's It's so nice to be here. And it was so lovely to have you on my podcast as well. Um, and hearing your story. So it's, yeah, this is the, the wonderful thing about the podcasting world is you get to know so many new people 
um, they might never have met otherwise. Yeah. So my story, I've had, I would say, an unconventional life, I suppose. To me, it's just my life. It's just what's happened. Um, but the more I talk about it, the more I realize that I have not had a life many people have had. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, and I've, I've loved every minute of it, all the scary parts, the fun parts, the boring parts. Um, I, I've been very, very lucky in my upbringing. So I'm an expat baby. I was made in Africa, born in Sweden, grew up in Africa and in Sweden, um, traveled the world. I've been very, very lucky. And I'll say that over and over and over again, because I feel very lucky to have led the life I've had. Um, oh, so I am the daughter of a farmer. Uh, he used to be a crocodile farmer as well, which I think is endlessly entertaining and a teacher. And they met in Africa and then they made my brother and I, and we grew up in Mozambique, um, a little bit in Zimbabwe and mainly in Zambia. And those were really my formative years, I think, where I found out the love of wild, like being wild and living in the wild and going to boarding yeah. school and storytelling. The African culture is is so based on stories, I feel. Mo most cultures are, but I think the way that the Africans tell stories really captured my attention and my right, love of right. books. So we left in 1999 and moved to Sweden. So I was nine years old at the time. And there I found even more the love of books and storytelling and worlds that you could escape into <laughs> on pieces of paper. Um, so yeah, lived in Sweden. Uh, Mom continued being a teacher. Dad did farming for a little bit longer and then went into software development and completely changed his life, went back to school, changed his life completely, started programming and then set up his own business on doing software development. So I live a lot through my parents or rather they, my parents are like my best friends, my brother are my best friends. That's amazing. Um, I've learned a lot from them. I've learned from their mistakes. <laughs> That's good. But we, we became a very close knit family when we left Africa. Uh, yeah, yeah. cause we have family in Sweden. My mom is Swedish. My dad is from Zimbabwe and it kind of felt we only, we only knew who each other were. We, we could relate to the journey we'd been on. We could relate to the difficulties we'd been faced with. Yeah. So I'm very close to my parents and I learn a lot from them and yeah, they, they made me the person that I am today. Oh, that's so. that's a lovely story so far. <laughs> so uh, far, yeah. <laughs> so far, because there's more to come, I'm sure. What what is incredible to hear that you said your dad was a farmer, mm -hmm. and then he pivoted into software development. Yeah. yeah, that is a massive change, isn't it? What well, do you know? What made him us, make yes. that change? For us, it's a big change. For, for From the outside, it looks like a big change. But for dad, he said software, is, it, it's like dealing with people as well. You've got lots of information that needs to be organized. He had always had a fascination with computers as well. So as, as right. soon as it came out, dad was one of the first to have a computer and start working on Excel spreadsheets to manage the farms. And so 
he he did project management in farming basically by being by by being the farmer and and dealing with people um yeah. he learned project management almost at, at a de facto level and so when he went into software again it was it was project management how do you manage people how do you manage data how do you get people to talk to each other yes. how do you mainstream communication so even though it seems like a completely different pivot the skill sets that he learned in farming are the exact same skill sets he uses today in software development and dealing with clients yeah. and helping to make sure that projects are are delivered on time and within budget so for him it's like a giant puzzle piece i suppose that he puts together and yeah so it, it was a big change in terms of how yeah, much yeah. time he spent at home. <laughs> like he was no longer out before the sun was up and back when the sun was down, um, we could see him more often. Uh, so yeah, but for a lot of people, it was a big change, but for him, it just seemed logical. He was following one of his passions that he had had within farming yes. and used those skill sets to change. And I think that's what, I, what I've always admired about my father is he does have that skill set where things get difficult. He just picks himself up and goes, right, how are we going to make his words here and excuse the French? How do we make shit into fertilizer? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I kind of learned that from him. So it's, it's I suppose it's the um, best description, I guess, he is of having transferable skills going from Absolutely. one industry to another. Absolutely. Um, and we all have those transferable skills, don't we? Mm -hmm. So when we put our mind to it, we can pivot into other things if we really, really, you know, are so compelled to do. So, yeah, yeah fantastic. So um, I just wanted to backtrack just a tiny little bit. Um, did you say you were educated in two different places in Zimbabwe and Sweden? So up until nine um, in Zambia mainly. So we went to boarding school in Zambia. We were went to schools there, lots of different schools. I went to a Hindu school um, because my mom was a teacher there. Uh, went to a Christian school, which was based off of one of the schools that my great-grandfather set up in Zimbabwe. And then we moved to Sweden. Right. And, uh, yep, went to school there, went to an international school. And then after that, for okay. high school, went to a business school for high school. So learned business and etiquette and what it means to live in the corporate world. Um, and then from there, decided to do university. So I actually did my bachelor's in Sweden with one semester in Australia. And then I applied to one master's degree, and that was in Edinburgh. And that was nine and a half years ago that I moved to Scotland. Right. To do my master's degree and I just never left. <laughs> okay. Okay. So now it's now more questions come up in my head. <laughs> but basically, I think what you said there, you went to international school in Sweden. So you didn't have to learn mm -hmm. Swedish, or can you speak Swedish as well? I'm fluent in Swedish. Oh, you are? So my first language was actually Portuguese. The first words that I ever said were in Portuguese because we were living in Mozambique at the time. Wow. Uh, when we moved to Zambia, uh, we my parents stopped speaking Portuguese. Obviously, it's an English-speaking country. And my mom would speak Swedish with us, but realized 
because she was the person that was with us all the time because dad was so busy, if she yeah. kept yeah. speaking Swedish, we wouldn't be able to communicate with our father. Yes, so yes. we had a balance of Swedish and English growing up, mainly being English. So English is the the language that I'm most comfortable speaking. Yeah. And then yeah. when we moved to Sweden, the first year, we our Swedish was good enough that we got into a Swedish school for the first year. And right. then we moved on to the international school. So I okay. am fluent in Swedish, but I'm more comfortable speaking English. And actually the year where I became comfortable speaking Swedish was actually when I was about 15. And right. I remember reading seven books that summer and six of them were in Swedish. So I wow. learned best from reading, from reading books, reading fantasy books. Um, wow. So that's when my Swedish level was significant, significantly increased. My brother, who's 18 months younger than me, adapted to speaking Swedish a lot faster than I did. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say his Swedish level is much better than mine. Um, I still find it strange. In fact, uh, if I'm watching TV uh, and I don't expect to hear Swedish, I often don't hear it until a few syllables after. It takes a while for my brain to pick up the fact that I'm listening to Swedish. Yes, so if yes. I don't expect to hear it, I almost don't until something in my brain recognizing this is a language you know, you should know what they are saying. Yes. Um, and that's happened a handful of times watching TV, which is, it's been strange hearing a language I'm fluent in as though someone that doesn't know the language. Yeah. It's a very strange conundrum in my brain. <laughs> I have the same and probably worse with the Dutch language. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I so I can totally empathise what what's happening with you. I mean, mm. when I go to the Netherlands, I speak to people in English. Yeah. Because that's where I'm most confident in. And my wife yeah. turns around to me and says, "Michael, speak in Dutch." I said, <laughs> "I've got the confidence to." But then when I start speaking in Dutch to the same waiter or waitress after I've spoken in English, they kind of mm. go, "What the hell?" Yeah. <laughs> but then they say, oh, no, you are definitely English because you speak with an English accent, you know. So oh, that's so funny. <laughs> that's awful to know. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, OK, so thank you for that, because obviously having a similar issue as you with languages, I was curious how that all kind of translated. And, and of yeah. course, you know, it's fantastic training um, for anybody to have to swap languages, especially in mm -hmm. education. I was a coward. When we came to the UK, I stopped education because I wasn't confident enough to mm -hmm. do education in English. And um, But that you swapped languages and everything else. And so in terms of your accent, um, because you have got, having been, you know, you've lived in Scotland for nine and a half years, you have got a bit of a Scottish accent, but not a full one, I would say. No, my accent. Oh, my God. The, the, the story of my accent. So I used to have a nice, proper British colonial accent like the rest of my cousins, like my father, when we grew up in Africa. When I moved to Sweden and we got to the international school and my teacher's going to laugh at this. I tell her every chance I do. Uh, my favorite teacher was from California. I absolutely adored the ground that she walked on. Yeah. So I decided I was going to sound like my teacher. So I actually adopted a Californian accent 
for a very long time. So for ages, I sounded oh, American. Yeah, and still yeah. to this day, I get asked, are you from America? Um, and I've always loved drama and acting. So I learned how to adopt accents. Right. But I do it by accident sometimes. So when I was in Australia, I adopted an Australian accent. Yeah. When I was in New Zealand, I picked up a few twangs there and then moving yeah. to Scotland. So I worked hard to get rid of the American side of my accent to get back right. to a more British sounding twang. Yes. And yes. then eventually, actually last year when I started podcasting, I just realized this is my accent. It's a hodgepodge of everything. People hear what they want. Some people can hear South African in there. Some people can hear Scottish. Sometimes yes. it's just a word. Um, and actually I've realized it's just part of my identity. Having been an expat, lived all over the world. Um, my accent changes depending on who I'm talking to or how I feel that day or God forbid I've had one wine too much <laughs> and there's a South African in a room, then it changes <laughs> completely. Um, so yeah, it's it's a hodgepodge of accents. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, I got it 100%. And I can hear every single bit of it, actually, when you listen really carefully. And I, I think it's unique. It makes you special. So yeah, well done. Keep it up. Keep the same accent you've got now. That's good. And just keep going in and out of different ones. Who cares? Yeah, we'll uh, see what other ones I can collect along the way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Okay. So we got the kind of schooling out of the way. You, you then did your master's in Edinburgh, you said. Mm -hmm. Edinburgh yep. University. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And your master's is in what? So I did both my bachelor's and my master's in international development. So right. at the time of choosing my bachelor's, I had two choices. I gave myself two choices. None of them involved staying in Sweden in the long term. Sweden right. was not where I was happy. So I had two, two choices. I was either going to find some way to leave Sweden, one way or another, travel the world, do something, yeah. Or I was going to find a degree that was in English because I didn't feel confident enough to be able to do a degree in Swedish. Now, it was kismet at the time that an old teacher of mine, her husband, was part of a brand new program in development studies that was being held at Lunds University, and they were starting the first cohort. So I applied to that. Yeah. And I got in. So universe or whoever it was that decided, um, I got into development studies and I did three years. And that's where I got to do um, a semester abroad as part of an exchange term. Right. Um, so that's how I got to Australia. But during that course, I realized how much I love development studies and how much I love international development. So a lot of it was about learning how to work with NGOs or the EU, the UN. It was a lot of that kind of um, feel good work. I suppose yes. you could say, and yeah. a chance for me to move back to Africa to do good, to help the communities I'd grown up in. Yes. So when I finished my bachelor's, again, I gave myself two choices. One was actually moving to New Zealand to work for Greenpeace. And the other was moving to Edinburgh to do the only master's program in international development that I had found. Yeah. And I got into my master's program. So I moved over and I did my master's in international development. And Where? I loved learning. Where did you do I that? Got a, sorry? Where did you do that? Which, the Masters? Yes. Edinburgh University. Oh, in Edinburgh. Okay, yeah. right, right, yeah. yeah. 
So I got into the master's in international development at Edinburgh University. Um, And after that, I thought of doing a PhD, but I realized I don't fit in the academic world. I'm very academic. I love academia. But I felt that the field of research was far too much concerned with name dropping Right. And referencing stories that were 20, 30, 40 years old, as opposed to being on the ground and learning about how things really were. So I remember getting into arguments with professors um, mm. claiming that Africa needed help. And I was like, no, they don't. No, they don't. Stop it. Stop telling that story. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, after that, I decided to not go back to university and do a PhD in it. Got you. Got you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then... Right, just just tell me what happened next after you got your <laughs> masters. So throughout from the age of about 17, um 16, 17, I had been working in very in customer service but in different industries. So I worked in a costume and joke shop which I absolutely loved. I had worked as a breakfast hostess at a hotel in Australia. I was a court monitor which I absolutely in hindsight loved probably at the time didn't like so much. Um, And then when I moved to Scotland, I wanted another job. So I worked in a cookware shop. And so I'd had all these different jobs already and noticed the one thing that I loved in all of them was dealing with people and helping people. So when I left my master's, I I was living in Edinburgh and in the UK to get jobs with charities or the, the jobs that I would be looking for. I would either need to move to Glasgow or I would also have to have about 10 years worth of volunteering experience because this country is very good at volunteering, but Sweden didn't have that same culture. So I didn't yeah. have any volunteering experience. And so I decided to just find a job that I could get into. So I ended up in the banking sector doing customer service at call centers within the banking sector and life insurance. And I made it my mission at the end of every single call to make sure that whoever had called me, no matter how irate, no matter how angry they were, I would make sure that they left me with a smile on their face or at least feeling good about the phone call that they had had. Yeah. So complete pivot, had nothing to do with my degree, had nothing to do with what I'd been set my target on and everything to do with I wanted to live in Edinburgh. And those were the jobs that were available in Edinburgh. <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, so, yeah, went into the banking sector. Unfortunately, at that time, I became very sick with chronic fatigue syndrome. Right. So I found working very difficult and I had no social life. And I'm a very social person. Mm. So life was very difficult for a few years. And there came a time where I decided I had to get off of the call center route because I wasn't progressing in a career. I knew I could do better, but because of my disease, um, I, I had too many absences due to my disease. And at one particular job, I had to get uh, the union involved, et cetera, um, to kind of show that, that this was a disability. It wasn't something I'd chosen to have. Yeah. And that that was really rough, but it made me realize that I wasn't suited to being in that environment anymore. So I ended up moving on and working with a company that did uh, culture change programs. 
Yes. I came on board and helped them with their project management of those culture change programs. And I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. I was getting better because I was in control of my hours and wasn't constantly like stressed out waiting for a phone call to come in. Um, So I became much better health wise after that and life became a lot easier. So I did about a year with this company and I loved culture change. Absolutely loved seeing how people's eyes lit up when they realized something about themselves. And I really, really enjoyed it. Um, But at the end of that year, I thought, no, I need to do something different. I need to collect something else. I need another career. (laughs) I feel like I've learned all that I can with this company. I I need to find another company to work for. So at the time, my father uh, was looking to branch into the UK to set up offices. And so he said, why don't you have a think and see if you would like to come on board and do software development? Well, not do software development, but sell software development. And he said, you're good with people. You're good at talking with people. So why don't you come on board? And I thought about it and I went, yeah, why not? Why not? That'll be a skill set. I love computers. They hate me. Anyone that knows me knows I have a terrible track record for actually owning laptops and them not crashing on me. But I loved <laughs> software development. Like a, in my free time, I'd made websites and I, I practiced HTML because I just enjoyed seeing something being created. Yeah. So I ended up working for my dad for four years and learning the ropes of what it means to be a director, what it means to set up a business what it means to set up a marketing department and work with the marketing team and a sales team. And I learned a lot of skills there. And then when COVID happened, um, we kind of took a look at where things were and I decided I needed to move on again. I needed to try something new. I needed a new skill set. And then that's when I spoke with my uncle and he said, Marlene, I want to set up the business in the UK. I want to get an office <laughs> set up there. Can you do that? And that's where I am now. So my African, my African, my uncle <laughs> sells these beautiful African um, hardwood furniture that he designs and manufactures in Victoria Falls. And yes. it's furniture that I've loved for over 15 years. He's been in business for 30 and that's where I am now of, of helping set up the business here and get sales up and running and share this amazing furniture with, with the people in the UK and in Europe because um, they're so expertly made. I, I just, I'm in love with this furniture. Absolutely in love with it. So, yeah. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. And all these changes happened over what kind of time period, roughly? Well, I'm 31 now. Yeah. So I don't know if that helps at all. <laughs> <laughs> so from banking to um, to corporate corporate culture change or customer service rather than banking, customer service in the banking sector to culture change to software development to furniture sales. Um yeah, that that's in the space of ten years. Ten years. That's what I thought. Yeah, I was um, I wasn't going to say that, but that's what it sounded like with everything yeah. that you've been describing. So that's that's like a change every couple of years, probably. Yeah, and yeah. which is probably, I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because they say, um, or they have said said in well, the past was people got jobs for life, didn't they? Yeah. In organisations. Then it was, 
Well, you go on, they likened it to being on tour with a company. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the software industry started, I remember um, um, the guy who set up LinkedIn, he, was, he wrote about that, being on tour. About 10 years ago, he wrote a book about it. And uh, maybe less, but saying you go on tour, meaning you're going to be there for a few years and then move on to another company. Mm-hmm. But, you know, significant, like seven or 10 years and then you move. Yeah. And then that changed, that thinking has changed probably to what you are describing, which is you, you can change every couple of years if you want to, you know. Yeah. And it's not about searching for what you really love, but enjoying that project it's like project employment almost isn't it you're <laughs> you're employed for a you're like a freelancer uh, <laughs> and it's, it's not about trying to discover what you really are going to be enjoying so i i love it that you're from what you're describing you embrace change and i think i know why that is because mm-hmm. i embrace change as well and that's because you've moved around a lot mm-hmm. and you've been to different educational institutions in different countries. You've got international parents from different countries. And that's exactly what happened to me, too. And mm. that's why I don't mind pivoting from something to something. I mean, as it happened, I stayed in one industry for a very long time. But once I got out, I've been pivoting. Mm more so to find what I think I enjoy and what I yeah. can make work. But um, it's it's fascinating that you, you have that philosophy of, yeah, I've, I've had enough of that for now and I'm not going to move on to the next project because something else has come along and I really fancy that for mm. now and mm. see where that takes me. And I think that's a healthy attitude to have uh, in this world today. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's come with a lot of existential crises along the way and needing yes. to try and identify with people. I mean, if you just look at being an expat or or uh, what's called a third culture kid. So those of us that have grown up in lots of different countries, we tend to feel that we're not accepted anywhere. Yes. So for me, it was a lot of not being accepted by the people I'd grown up with in Africa because I hadn't spent my teenage years there, didn't belong in Sweden because I hadn't spent my childhood there. So it was like I just missed out on both of them. Yeah. And then it wasn't until I moved to Scotland um, that I was like, okay, I chose to live here. But actually, up until last year, I still struggled with identifying where home was. Yeah. It wasn't until last year that I realized, oh, wait, this is my home. I'm not going to be made to move. I'm not going to be made to leave. But then you've got the added struggle of, well, do I want to leave? Do I want to be in one place? I love traveling. Like there was always this dichotomy of you can't be one or the other. You either have to be someone that's settled or you have to be someone that travels. Yeah. You have to be someone in business or you have to be someone that's creative. Like, so it comes with that existential crisis of not knowing what box to put yourself in, because as a society, we are so used to putting ourselves in boxes and being identifiable to other people where people can say, you are this person. So when you've had a very varied background career-wise or life-wise, 
it does come with that um, anxiety, I would say, of not knowing how to identify yourself. And actually, before the podcast, I mentioned how I'd been on this creative flow. It's because I had one of those epiphanies of who am I? Who do I want to be? What is my reason for having such a varied background or a varied career choice? Um, Because you inevitably get met with, oh, but from software to banking to furniture, like how does that all tie together? Are you actually scatterbrained? Can you not focus on one thing long enough? Like you end up hearing a lot of those things as well, or assuming you'll hear those things. So yes, it's amazing when the whole world realizes that you need to be able to change and adapt. So thanks to the pandemic, people are realizing this is a skill set that that is valuable. Yeah, It's a skill set that's good that you can be thrown into a new situation and just go, I can cope. I know how to cope. I know how to manage. Yeah. But up until now, I don't think it's been something that's been seen as beneficial at a, a, a wider level. It's You're been, right. okay, you can change within your industry or you can change within your life because of circumstances, yes. but it's never been you can pivot your life completely. Or you can change careers completely without having that detrimental image also assigned to you. That's my own personal opinion, but I'm happy to be proven wrong. (laughs) No, it's a really great topic. And we could talk about this thing for a long time, but just very briefly, a couple of observations. I mean, those are great insights, what you have. You're 100% spot on. And I think... The reason that you're able to pivot in the way that you can, because it's in the genes, because your father mm-hmm. did it. <laughs> you know, it's in yeah. the genes. Number one. Um, number two, the whole thing with identity. I, I I think it's a major issue in the world of. And I've been listening to some podcasts around um, something called dependent origination. Mm-hmm. which is one of the noble truths in Buddhism, right? I'm not a Buddhist, but I'm studying some aspects of it because mm-hmm. I'm enjoying discovering why the world is in suffering mm-hmm. and what it means not to be in suffering. One yeah. of the things that keeps us in suffering is identity. It's trying to identify ourselves who we are, where we have a place in the world, and how people identify with us, you know, Mm. if they put us into this box. And the only box we need to worry about, really, is this physical box, this physical being that we walk around in. That's Mm. the only box we need to worry about. Everything else is, is immaterial. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, there, it doesn't exist, actually. Yeah. You know, exactly. I'm a I'm a furniture importer. I'm I'm in customer service in banking. I'm a software engineer. I build websites. I do farming. I, none of it matters. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's the person, it's who the person is. And I know it I can't translate on a CV. I get what you're saying. Yeah. And I was concerned about my business and its continuity. So I started putting my CV together and everyone says, you need to have one and a half pages. That's maximum, ideally one page. 
Mm-hmm. Well, my story is so long, it's difficult, but I did it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also what made me realize, actually, is I put it on job boards and then I took it off. I went, forget it. It's it's pointless. They will never get me because mm-hmm. I've pivoted so many times into different things. They will never understand that this person can do a job in this particular channel mm-hmm. and stay there. Because yeah. I, prob- I probably couldn't. And neither could you, because too much water, even though you're still really young, you have, um, you're, you're an old soul because of <laughs> your experience. You know, you, you, you've got life experience behind you that, that multiplies your years of experience exponentially, mm. if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's me talking a little bit because I, I like that topic because you mentioned the word identity you know no it's it's true it's it's how do we identify and are, is it okay to be outside of the box and that's some of the things that i've been thinking about today especially yeah is is it okay to position yourself outside of the box so for me i'll read up what what i wrote actually it was it was oh, one yes, of these please. things where it's like i want to be all of these things so I was like, I I want to be an author. I want to interview people. I want to be a journalist, but I also want to be a businesswoman. I want to sell furniture. I want to make this a success. And it was all of these things. How do you, how do you put your life together where it's okay to be all of you and not just show certain parts of you? So one area was if I take just the author thread, right? I love writing, have such a love of writing and books. And so it became, okay, well, I want to do writing about networking because I find that really interesting. And I I want to redefine what networking means, but I also want to write a fantasy book for adults. Oh, but I also have an idea for a book for children. So then, then you go into the thought, well, do I need a pseudonym for all of these different aspects of me? Do I need to Hmm. cut myself, my multifaceted interests into boxes or elements of myself that people can understand so they can understand children's author but can they put children's author together with business author can you be two of the same thing Mm. and so a lot of thought today has gone into how can we break down those barriers where there are people that are comfortable showing that they have many skill sets or they have many interests and for that to be okay and not seen as scatterbrained or unable to to be a variety of things to different people. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, people would call you ADHD, wouldn't they, or something? Um, Probably, but I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> no, but they would label. They would, yeah. <laughs> that person can't focus. They're all over the shop. They want to do all of these different things. It's impossible. Pick a lane. You know, yes, that's the, exactly. That's the saying. Pick a yeah. lane. Pick yeah. a lane. And you got to focus. You got to you got to focus and go go deep on something. Mm. Um, and actually, I get I do get the sentiment on that too. Mm. But it's also very boring. Well, for someone that likes collecting, and I've actually got a few friends like this, and we've had very in depth discussions about the societal norm of picking a lane, picking a career. Mm. When actually you've got so many interests, you just want to explore the world. You want to explore everything that life has to give. 
And it doesn't mean that you've got ADHD. So it might mean that you can focus on something for a certain amount of time. So an example of this is my father is very good at being structured in his head. He knows what he needs to do and he does it and he sticks to it. He can concentrate on the same thing for 10 days in a row. His mind works like that. Yeah, Mine doesn't. I can't spend three days working on one project. Mm. I have to take time away. So this is where I've got a variety of hobbies. I like painting or um, working with my hands or whatever it may be. But I noticed at university, I tried one semester to only read my course material. That was it. I wasn't going to read fantasy books. I wasn't going to read autobiographies, anything like that. I was only going to focus on my course material. And I was miserable. I didn't enjoy it at all because my brain needed something else to focus on to free up time to be able to come back and see it with fresh eyes. Yes. So for me, I need things that are seemingly completely opposite from each other because by taking my attention completely away from something, it actually allows me to come back to it and see it with a fresh perspective and without the thought process that I had when I was in on the project. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of my friends say the same. They need that variety. They need to be able to come out of something to then come back in and look at it again. Yeah. It's like a, a coach, right? They might not know everything in depth, but they look at it from the top and they help you pinpoint what it is that you're able to do because they've got a fresh perspective. Yeah. And that's what I do with myself. I take myself out of the equation. I take myself out of this important topic that I've got. I spend an hour doing something completely different that refreshes me and makes me feel new again. And then I come back and all of those parts, those strings that I couldn't pull together, all of a sudden I see the connection. But they they do, well, when I say they, <laughs> there are people that that teach that type of approach to creativity and mm. better working, as a better working practice, that we can mm. only concentrate on something for like 20 minutes. Yeah. And that we should then walk away, do something else or go away from it and then come back to it yeah. uh, and have more breaks. And I mean, especially... Now, I mean, I've it's, it's not been an issue for me, COVID, because I've worked from home for 15 years. So I've been in training for working from home anyway. But mm. um, people have had struggled with this working from home uh, in their concentration levels and their anxiety mm. and stress levels as a result of it. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. I Go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I've been quite lucky in that I was already working from home. So yes. I'd already adapted those techniques to be able to sit down and work on something for eight hours and then move on. Or when you need a break, do the washing and then come back and be able to, yeah. to work on what you're working on. So, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Okay. So we'll come back to the furniture mm -hmm. bit because I'd like to know a tiny bit more there where you are at. But I also know, we talked about it right at the beginning, that you're a podcaster. Yeah. Uh, and you have several podcasts. So please, could you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So the first one I started at the start of lockdown, um, and it was probably six months in the making. So when we were allowed to, I rented out my spare room on Airbnb. And I had this guest that stayed with me for a few days. 
And I loved hearing his stories. He would be Mm -hmm. talking about birding or a radio show that he was on talking about some obscure bird form. And I just sat there with hearts in my eyes, just completely (laughs) enthralled (laughs) by his story. Um, Because I I am endlessly curious. I love learning about people's lives. I love learning about what they've been unto and how they've seen adventure in their lives and how did they get to where they were. Everyone has an interesting story. That's right. And so I sat there, I went, do you think this would like, could could this this work on a radio show? Could this work on a podcast? Could, Could someone pick up on my love of hearing a story and my enthusiasm about hearing about someone that was in quotation marks, Joe blogs off the street and seemingly boring um, and pick up on the fact that this person's story is so exciting. I find it so exciting. So I asked him and he said, yeah, why not you just give it a try, see what it's like. I was like, okay, okay, I will. The next day I bought microphone and didn't take it out of the box. Did Uh not touch it for six months. (laughs) (laughs) And then, Lockdown happened and I woke up one morning and it was actually the bank holiday. So a year, not too long ago or last week, whenever it was. No, this week. Oh my God. It's a year now. Yay. It is. It's a year. It's been a year. My God. Um, And I woke up one morning and I thought, just going to start it. Like I keep planning it and wanting it to be perfect before I even start it. And I thought, no, time to just start it and see where it goes. Yeah. So I called my brother because he's one of the most interesting people I know. And he's got such a dark, sarcastic sense of humor. Right. And I thought I could spend an hour talking to my brother. So I, I called him up and I said, but can you, um, can you just tell me about your trip to Morocco for the podcast? Can we just do like one episode just on that? And he said, yeah, okay, fine. And we did that. And I just, I fell in love with it. Um, it was actually the first time I had heard my voice and not despised my own voice. Oh, great. And so it was one of these perfect moments where I was like, I I can do this. This is going to be fun. So the first season was just talking to friends and I reconnected with friends I went to boarding school with. So it was very nostalgic. It was very healing for me to talk to people that I hadn't talked to in 20 years um, and new people and get to know stories about my friends I didn't even know. Like I found it about things with, with people I'd networked with for four years and never known their backstory. I thought, this is amazing. This is so amazing to hear about people that I, I see as friends, and yet I had no idea that this was part of their lives. Yeah. Um, and then from that, uh, a friend introduced me to his cousin. So that was my first stranger. That was the first big, oh, I'm talking to someone I don't know yet. <laughs> um, and then I launched season two, and season two was mostly strangers that oh, had wow. reached out and they were like, can, can I speak on your podcast? Or I had joined this website called um, matchmaker.io.com, something like that. And written to people and said, your story seems interesting. Can I interview you? Um, so I plucked up the courage of how do I talk to people that I don't know? Yeah. How do I get their stories? Because we're not traveling, but I miss people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So season two was pretty much just strangers. And then we've just launched season three um, of which you are one of the people that will, yes. that has been interviewed and to come up. And we've got 13 amazing episodes with everyone. I've not met a single person on this list before and I'm interviewing them about their lives. And it's been the most rewarding hobby, I would say, yeah. of learning these 
learning people's stories, but also the skill sets I've learned and how do you listen to someone? How do you employ active listening? How do you take yourself out of an equation? Because you listen to someone talk and straight away you're like, oh, I want to share my story. I have the same story. I know what to do here. Um, but then you realize it takes away the magic for that person. Yes. Like it's it's okay if you've shared that story, but that your story can come later yeah. when they ask you. Like to give people that space to share their story and not get involved in it, but be almost like a, a third party listening in, just help letting them use their voice. Yeah. Um, was just so rewarding and learned so many skills. So I had started that. And I've so I've been a member of the Institute of Directors for four years. And yeah. I sat on a committee or I sit on one of the committees. Um, and so we had thought, what can we do that's different? Because we can't do networking events. We can't get our members around the same table to meet each other. So I turned to my chair at the time and I said, well, I've already got everything set up. Why don't we do a podcast? Mm. So that's how we did the IRD Scotland and Business podcast. Right. So we did one season with just Scottish people. Um, and then from that, I was like, oh, but I want to talk to more people. <laughs> I want more people to talk to. Why not just Scotland? There, there's so many people in the UK. There's got to be stories out there. So I spoke with the IOD and um, our committees were restructured. So I then got put on as vice chair for um, Fife and Tayside of the Institute of Directors. Yes. And so we rebranded it Leaders in Business. Right. So I now host the Leaders in Business, Business podcast on behalf of the Institute of Directors, where we talk to business leaders about their journeys. Yeah. Um, and it's very specifically about their mindsets and how they got to where they are, what makes them strong, what makes them a good leader. Yeah. And it's learning about what elements have helped them progress in their careers, mm. what makes them good leaders. And Again, I've, people I've talked to for four years, and I had no idea how they had got to where they were. And each of their stories are unique. Each of the stories are inspirational. And you sit there and you have such a big appreciation for these leaders and, and how they've, they've learned how to lead, how to, how to grow their business. And it all stems from their own tenacity and their, their willingness to change and their their desire to create something that they can pass on. Yes. All of them have this desire to change the world for the better in one way or another. Great. And I ju it's been such an inspirational journey learning about these leaders and, and interviewing them. So yeah, I, I love interviewing people. I love speaking to people about their stories and collecting them. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that's one of the commonalities throughout my life. It's, it's storytelling and yeah. making people smile like, through customer service or whatever it may be that that's what I absolutely love. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and you can, I mean, listening to your story, I fully understand why you're so interested in stories, you know, cause yeah. it's been a, excuse the pun. It's been a thread through your, throughout <laughs> your life, hasn't it? It has. Yeah. I mean, there was your story, but then you love writing, you love books, you love reading you know, and of course, it's only natural that you would be in love with hearing other people's stories. Mm. So fantastic. So just give me the name of your own podcast, because I don't think you mentioned it yet. 
So my own podcast is called the Wild Adventures Podcast, and it's where adventure is not just a destination, but also a mindset. Great. And the IOD one, so Institute of uh, Directors, is it's called... called Leaders in Business. Okay, so if anyone's listening, go and check those out <laughs> on your favorite podcast app. And uh, sounds awesome. And and I guess, do you see that as something that's going to be just ongoing for you? Yeah, I don't. I do it as a hobby. It's one of those things that allows me a break from the everyday um, yeah. to to connect with people. I, I love connecting with people, and and when I work from home, when working with my uncle, but the whole team is in Africa, I need that mm. connection with people to to feel like I'm not sitting by myself in my office at yes. home. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's something that I will continue. Sometimes it needs to take a little bit of a break. So now I've got this backlog of interviews that I need to edit to get up yes. um, because your day life takes over and you need to focus on the business. You need to focus on setting up the business and getting sales. Um, but certainly anytime I've got a free moment, I'm looking for people to interview and to share their stories and work on the podcasts. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. I promised we would get back to your furniture business. <laughs> So share with us where you're at with that. Where is the project? You know, what are you up to? When is the furniture going to land? When can people buy it? How do they buy it? Tell us everything. <laughs> so I am going to be a reseller for my uncle. So his business is called The African Touch. Now you can buy from them straight away. They've already got a website. They've got shipping methods, everything in place. Yeah. What we're trying to do with the business that I've called African Safari Furniture very on point, says what it does, yes. um, is make the, the process a little simpler for people to be able to buy from the UK. Right. So when we buy from Africa, you've got a lot of the shipping costs, et cetera, that are added with. What we want to do is bring them into the UK um, and then sell them from here, uh, select pieces, uh, select amounts of pieces that we will sell. Um, but it's really sharing that the mastery that he has created and collected around him. He has got some amazing builders that work with him that use really outdated, not outdated, but classic furniture building techniques that you don't see very often anymore. Okay. Um, so the way that he makes the furniture, it's built to last. So we've, we got chairs from him when I was a kid that we still use today. And we bought furniture, I think we bought some chairs, it was 10, 15 years ago from him, and they still look new. I've got a jewelry box. So he used to make small items a long time ago. I've got a jewelry box that he gave me when I must have been 12, and it still looks brand new. Yeah. Like the, the joinery and the detail that he puts into his work is exceptional. Uh, and that's why I really wanted to work with him, because he has okay. an excellent product. And I just really want to share that classic look with people in Europe uh, yes. for them to have that story and that joy of having African teak um, or mahogany in their homes and have that journey that follows them as well and furniture that lasts for decades. Yeah. Um, and I think we're so you, used to. Are you storing it in the UK then? So we're in the process of looking for, for storage facilities to be able to do this. Right. Um, we're in the process of setting up the business and getting a website live. Okay. So right now, if people want to have a look, they can look at theafricantouch.co.za. Right. 
um, or they can get in touch with me I, through my LinkedIn, just Marlene Lowe on LinkedIn, um, or even write to me at UK sales at African Safari Furniture.com. Um, and we can help them out with finding the furniture that suits them and make sure that they're, they get it in the next few months. So, yeah. Well, definitely we'll include these details in the show notes as well. Thank you. <laughs> and so what, what's the, What's the dream with this then? Where where do you think this will go? I would love to help people find furniture pieces that fills them with pride and gives them a story to tell. Great. It's it, it's art. I, I can't say any other way than it being artwork. You know how you go into someone's home and there's this beautiful painting on the wall and there's a story about how they got it and yeah, how much yeah. they love it. That's what I want to do with the furniture because they are pieces of artwork, this furniture. They are so yeah. exceptionally built. Yeah. I want people to have pieces of furniture that when people come into their homes, they go, wow, look at that field bar or look at that chair or look at that desk. Like they've got these amazing, beautiful desks. That you, just, you can't help but feel inspired and want to sit there and type away and work yeah. at the business and I really want to help people find that furniture that helps them walk into a room and go, wow, this is just, this is amazing. I love this. This makes my life feel whole having this, this bed or this desk or this chair, yeah. um, because we surround ourselves with beautiful things. I just want people to have that beautiful thing that puts a smile on their face and makes them feel a million bucks because <laughs> it, it's brought a smile to their face or it reminds them of a trip they took to Africa once upon a time. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. And how are you planning to get the word out there apart from appearing on podcasts? <laughs> <laughs> sales and networking. Okay. <laughs> Marketing, sales and networking. Yep. Okay, great. Well, if obviously I will include all those details in the notes, but if there's anything that I can do to help promote it on my social media, etc., when you're ready, when yeah. you've got the website up and running, and you've got some stock in the country, you know, just give me a shout out. Be, you know, Thank be you. only delighted to help you promote it in this country. Thank uh, you so much. <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. So, Marlene, what else have I not asked you that you would like to share with our listeners? You know what? I think, I think everyone should take time and just see where they find adventure in their life. Mm. Because I can guarantee you, if you choose to make your life an adventure, it will be. And then you'll never look for the greener side. Like find a way to just absolutely adore the life that you are living because it is unique. I have talked to almost a hundred people for podcasts and every single one of their stories is different. Yeah. And, and yours is as well. Like so stop looking to make your life different than what it is because no one has the life that you have. And if yeah. you can find the simplicity and beauty in that, then I think that's the greatest gift that you can give yourself. That's beautiful. I, that's just perfect to end on. And <laughs> apart from LinkedIn and, and that email address I'll share with people and the, and the, uh, the temporary website, Mm -hmm. uh, where else can people find you? 
Everywhere. I am on social media. So I've got about 3 million um, websites and 3 million social media profiles. Um, okay. you can I can't include 3 million. No. <laughs> <laughs> so my own personal journal um, with a few of my musings of life and journeys I've taken is thewanderingwildling.co.uk. Um, you can visit the website, thewildadventurespodcast.com. Uh, and you can find both of those on social media, Instagram, Facebook. Um, I'm on TikTok, but I'm not active. I'm just there to watch and look <laughs> yeah. at stories. Uh, so yeah, at LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter under Wandering Low. So you can hit me up there and, and have a chat. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I'll I'll <laughs> I'll listen back and get all those down. <laughs> and uh, put them in the notes as well so people can just click through and find you and connect with you. Thank Marlin, you. Marlin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Absolutely fantastic to see you. Thank you for having me. of course. <laughs> and maybe one day we'll see each other in the flesh, in, in person. Oh, let's hope. Let's hope. A nice coffee by the sea or something. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you and keep in touch. Take care. Will do. Thanks. Bye. Bye for now. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe and share at will. I'm always looking for more listeners and guests. So do get in touch, please. You can find me pretty easily by searching for Staying Alive UK. Thank you. Staying Alive UK. Share your story.